Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Alex. Very nice to be back. How are you doing? You're, you're back from your travels. Was it smashing? It was smashing. Thank you very much. I even managed to do... Actually, I, I immediately regret saying this. I was going to say I managed to do some reading, but now I think about it, I managed to do very little reading and a lot of lying around. Well, what did you read, though? I read a bit of... Jeff Dyer's book, and I can't remember the title, you know, about Roger Federer, The Last Days of Roger Federer. uh, Yes, yeah. Which uh, I I haven't read enough of it, but the bit I read, it's beginning to get nice and meaty, so I'm pleased about that. Funnily enough, I saw him the other day because he was in West Cork at the West Cork Literary Festival, where I was. Oh, everyone goes to the West Cork Literary Festival, I hear. Alex Clark. I've not only been, but I'm going back. I'm going oh, back, lovely. back shortly after we make this podcast. Is it in um, Bantry? It is in Bantry. And I love it was, Bantry. It's so it, beautiful. It was absolutely, Bantry looked absolutely gorgeous when I was there at the end of last week. I was interviewing Zadie Smith and Nick Laird together. Mm. And they only do a sort of double act at West Cork. So it was a, it was really, really good fun. They both did amazing readings. And actually, this wasn't so much fun that would be the wrong word but Nick Laird did an amazing reading of his poem Up Late in its entirety which is a poem that he wrote in response to his father's death in lockdown and at a point where he wasn't able to be with his father and it was just 
so compelling and it was wonderful and it makes you I'd read the poem several times beforehand and it just makes you realize what it's like to hear something so powerful being read to you it was one of those pin drop moments Mm, I bet I actually had read you writing about this and and I've trotted off to read the poem because you were so convincing about how wonderful it was and it was it's quite something and all and I I didn't hear it I bet he's brilliant at reading it aloud as well so much but it's 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 quite difficult to read isn't it it's wonderful yeah it really was now we do have to do a little bit of our our normal talk did your garden survive in your absence because it's been very hot it's been in your country, hot. as I understand, it's quite <laughs> rainy here. It's looking a bit sorry for itself, especially the hydrangeas. Can I just do, do a very quick gardening thing? Do you mm. remember the blue-white poppy, you know, my Himalayan poppy? I absolutely I, do. I went on and on about. I had a similar hydrangea thing. I bought the blue hydrangeas because I love those ones, and I put them in the right compost, which I'm sure is the ericaceous compost is the right one for blues if it's not please will people write in and tell me because I want to know what I'm doing wrong and I've been nurturing them lovingly put them in the right stuff watering them apart from last week and so they flowered and they're very beautiful but they're all pink so what are you going to do oh well something must have got in then do you think I don't understand what can have got in or I I love a pink hydrangea as well I must say or do you feel are you going to rip them all out because (laughs) imagine I did in a rage like the hulk Yes, maybe I'll do that. I'm going to ask you one gardening question, Lucy. I have bought for the first time ever a lovage plant. Ooh. Uh, now, do we? Do you? Is it something you've grown? Do you know how to grow it? No, I, I even know very vaguely what it is. It's sort of herb, isn't it? Kind of. I mean, again, do write in the lovely man who was selling it to me from a stall made me chew a bit of leaf, and it is the most intense celery flavor it's like mm. in very intense celery even if you just chew a tiny bit of leaf uh, do you know you've I, put me off now I know probably if you don't like celery it's probably not for you uh but I did say well can I grow it in a pot and I think you can but he said no don't it's got a very long tap root but it's a beautiful thing uh, so I you know reporting okay. back on that in in time to come but um you know we are on our way to Sylvan Groves aren't we because that's what we're doing on this week's show we will be wandering through Sylvan Groves and the babbling brooks of Arcadia and 10 years after the discovery of the Higgs boson we'll look at a biography of the particle physicist who made it all possible but first the word Arcadia immediately conjures up a pastoral idyll and an entire tradition of literary evocations from Virgil to Evelyn War and of course Tom Stoppard but going in search of Arcadia proves to be a somewhat more meandering course as the concept of a bucolic utopia has morphed and mutated over the centuries. Paul Holberton's two-volume study of the history of Arcadia in art and literature attempts to guide the reader through this territory and Professor Jonathan Bate has reviewed it for the paper. We're delighted that he joins us now. Welcome Jonathan. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. You are, in fact, our second consecutive guest from the Arizona State University. We had the marvellous Devaney Lozer talking about Charles Austin last week. But you are not in Arizona at the minute, are you? 
Not just now. Uh, Phoenix, Arizona, where the, where the campus is and its suburbs are renowned for offering nine months of heaven and three months of hell. The nine months of heaven are spring, winter and autumn when it's a constant delightful sort of 75 degrees. The three months of hell are the high summer. I just got a phone alert from my home there saying it's 114 degrees today. That's the old Fahrenheit, of course. So July is the time to, to decamp, to go, as uh, John Milton says at the end of Lycidas, the greatest of English Arcadian poems, to fresh woods and pastures new. So you're actually speaking to me from my pastures old of Oxford. Well, we apologised enormously to Devony last week for speaking to her on July the 4th because she might want to be at a party. And she said, nobody goes out. It's too hot to go out. Um, but it's <laughs> a, quite by coincidence, and, and we are going to get onto the matter of hand in one second, but I was listening earlier on in, in a kind of pleasurable way to a, an audio book of a Ruth Rendell mystery and a character suddenly says, quite out of character for his speech, tomorrow to fresh woods and pastures new. And I thought, wow, that's a coincidence. But actually, it just tells us how key the idea of this kind of pastoral idyll is in literature, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that that's such a famous line, the very, the very end of the poem. And uh, Milton's listed as when it's the most extraordinary poem. And of course, it's a poem about, it's about death. It's uh, in memory of a fellow Cambridge undergraduate whom he didn't actually know very well who had died, but Milton uses it as a sort of a way of saying farewell to youth, saying farewell to an idyll. And this seems to be one of the key characteristics of this Arcadian tradition, that it's always something that is lost. There's always a sense of elegy that comes with it. The sort of famous tag about Arcadia uh, which appears in a number of great Renaissance paintings, is et in Arcadia ego. And one of the things Holberton talks about in his book, and I talk about at some length in the review, is that line is actually inscribed above a skull in a famous painting by Gacchino. Uh, it's also there on a tomb in a very, very famous painting by, by Poussin. And as commentators have noticed, that doesn't just mean I am also in Arcadia, because the context means it's spoken by death or by the death's head. So it means even in Arcadia, I, death, am there. And that sense of Arcadia as something that is always going to be lost, something that is vanishing, seems so crucial. Uh, you, in your little introduction there, you mentioned Brideshead Revisited. And of course, the first part of Brideshead Revisited about Charles Ryder's Oxford Years, very lightly disguised version of Evelyn Waugh's Oxford Years, is called Et in Arcadia Ego. And indeed, Charles actually has a, a skull that he gets from the medical school and inscribes Et in Arcadia Ego upon it. And of course, Brideshead Revisited is such a great example of a, a sort of modern version of pastoral about this golden world that is lost and you know, the sad figure of Sebastian Flight, who, like Peter Pan, never grows up, never leaves the golden world. But the elegiac quality is so crucial to this tradition. There's two ways of looking at it, isn't there? Because the elegiac way of looking at it means that you are always looking back, essentially. Isn't there also a celebratory thing which says, here we are in this idyll now, it will pass. I'm even here, says death, but isn't this wonderful for now? Do you think it's a particularly English version of it that says, oh, woe for the time that's just been? That's a great question. And I, I think before reading this book, 
I did think that. But then seeing the extraordinary range of pastorals, both in visual art, but also in prose romances of the Renaissance and after, uh, and above all in poetry, seeing how Holberton just shows how the Arcadian tradition just spreads right across Europe. And that motif of death does seem very common throughout the tradition. I thought, mm, not so much uh, merely English. The aspect that I, I think is perhaps particularly English is this wonderful sort of double quality you get where uh, the Arcadian idea is both sort of celebrated and made fun of. There's a great sort of tradition of sort of parodying the conventions of pastoral. If you just think for a moment about Shakespeare's most obviously pastoral play, The Winter's Tale, it sets up that contrast between the wintry court of Leontes and the jollity of the pastoral world of Bohemia. But you sort of feel in that when Shakespeare brings on a Autolycus for Thief or when he, he brings on a dance of, sort of 12 satyrs that he's actually sending up the tradition as well as participating in it. You report that one of the things that Holbertson does is go back over this the sort of origins of the idea and establish how and when it came into being, it took hold. And there is a kind of running in parallel, I suppose, of the idea of it being a sort of Greek-rooted concept and a Latin-rooted one. But then you say yourself, it's a country of the mind, Arcadia, not a place. I wonder how it is tied to geography and specific cultures in that in, in its origins? That's a great question. I mean, I talk quite a lot in the review about the sort of the history of scholarship around the idea, mm. because Arcadia is an area of ancient Greece. And Arcadia is the setting of the pastoral tradition, uh, where shepherds sort of sit around on hillocks or molehills and play their panpipes and talk about their lovers. Um, they never actually seem to do much hard shepherding. But Paradoxically, in the elegiac, the idyls of Theocritus, the, the late Greek poet, um, who is, is always thought of as the father of pastoral, the father of the tradition, he hardly ever mentions Arcadia. Indeed, one moment when he does, uh, he asks for the god Pan, who was allegedly born in Arcadia, to move to Sicily. That's a, so Sicily is the sort of um, Theocritus setting. It's only when Virgil the height of uh, the Augustan era in ancient Rome, the year 42, only when Virgil writes his eclogues, his pastoral eclogues in imitation of Theocritus, that the idea of Arcadia as a place becomes more central. But even then it's paradoxical because Virgil was from Mantua and a lot of those poems are set in, in Mantua. So there was a, a great uh, scholar, art historical and intellectual historian um, called Bruno Snell, who said, uh, no, Arcadia was only discovered by Virgil. But then the art historian, uh, Owen Panofsky, said, well, even in Virgil, it's not quite there. Uh, maybe it was really discovered by Sanazzaro, who was an Italian Renaissance poet, sort of 1499, 1500, who actually calls his pastoral Arcadia and sort of puts the setting there. So there's a lot of sort of debate about this. But my, my point is that Arcadia is simply another name for this idyll, for what was called the locus Aminus, the, the pleasant place, the happy place. So it doesn't really matter where it is. Mm. Going back to the Winter's Tale for a moment, I mean, one of the oddities there is that the Winter's Tale is Shakespeare's dramatization of a pastoral romance by the writer Robert Greene. And in Greene, the pastoral setting is Sicily, 
whereas the winter court is Bohemia. And that, that kind of makes sense. And winters in Bohemia, in Czechoslovakia, are pretty chilly. And Sicily is the traditional location of pastoral and theocritus. For some reason, I suspect because he didn't want to offend the daughter of King James, who was about to marry the King of Bohemia. Shakespeare flips and puts the pastoral into Bohemia and the winter court into Sicily. And that perhaps reveals that it doesn't really matter about the real geography. What then is the, if the locus hominus, can, the pleasant place can be anywhere and is a state of mind, what are its qualities? What are the things it has to have to qualify as Arcadia, as this paradise, I wonder? It has to have good weather and it has to be green, and it has to have a kind of natural fertility, a kind of sustainability, as we might say. So it's, it's interesting, the way I begin the review is uh, pointing out that um, this idea of Arcadia is, uh, is so powerful, but it's often been used in advertising. As it happens, I live in a, in a suburb of Phoenix, there's a mountain behind my house, and I sometimes walk up it, and the, the suburbs I look across to are called Paradise Valley, and then Arcadia. And when those suburbs were created, the idea was these are these kind of oases of beauty on the edge of the city. There's always this country versus city opposition. So even if it's a, a suburb, by calling it Arcadia, it suggests this is where you achieve peace and harmony. You get away from the stress of the city. And I was really interested to discover from your review that this indeed is where Steven Spielberg is from. Yes, he, he was brought up uh, until I think he was uh, maybe 11 or 12 in Arcadia, the suburb of Phoenix. And by rather lovely coincidence, over the course of the past year, he's been filming a very autobiographical film called The Fablemans, based on his family life, based on his own Arcadian childhood in Arcadia. The movie's coming out in November. It's an amazingly filmic thing to be able to say, to say, I grew up in Arcadia yes. and then, you know, exactly. and, and then I moved on. In terms of what the Locus Moynus might like, does it also need sheep and goats and things to nominally herd around while you sit on your, your sort of hillock and play the lute? Yeah, and traditionally sing, does. Sing I mean, to the boy or the girl you're interested in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, the boy or the girl, where I slightly disagree with um, Holberton's uh, very learned book is that he, he very much focuses on um, the boy and the girl. Uh, but actually, there's a big tradition in pastoral of it being uh, the older shepherd and the younger shepherd, both male. There's a very interesting Elizabethan um, past set of pastoral sonnets by a man called Richard Barnfield that is very explicitly gay and alludes to this figure of Alexis, the lovely boy in Virgil's Eclogues, the older shepherd with his unrequited love for the lovely boy. But yes, to answer your question again, Virgil sort of gives us the answer there because Arcadia is very closely related to this pastoral idea, the pastor with his sheep or possibly goats, um, in contrast to the so-called Georgic tradition, which is much more about farming, about agriculture, about growing crops or keeping mm, bees. Much more having, productive having and hardworking and kind exactly. of a bit more of a work ethic for that one. Yeah, You see, I, I was thinking that living as I do in sheep farming country in Ireland, and it is very, very green, but I wouldn't say we had good weather for very much of the time, even as you in England are sweltering through a heat wave. I can just say we are not. So you would say I was in the Georgic tradition then rather than. <laughs> I think, I, I think you're, you're, yeah, you're in the pastoral Arcadian 
tradition in terms of those sheep and that greenness, but definitely the, the weather seems more Georgic. And again, yes. you know, the brilliance of Shakespeare, of course, just going back to the Winterstone for a moment, his wonderful um, character of Corin, the old shepherd, a name quite close to that of Corridon, who's the shepherd in Virgil's Eclogue. Corin talks a lot about the hard work of shepherding, about getting your hands greasy by having to put them up the sheep's backside. Again, Shakespeare, you know, participates in the pastoral tradition, but he says, actually, life in the country is tough. The idea that you can just sort of sit, sit around on, on a hillock, that's not how it really is. Sadly, no. sadly not. This volume is concerned with the Renaissance, and it's in two volumes earlier, and later Renaissance, and the Baroque and neoclassicism comes into the second volume. What was it that made it such a tempting concept for Renaissance artists and writers to revive and to nurture, do you think? It's partly to do with that larger Renaissance project of recapturing the ideas of classical antiquity, the stories, the myths, the gods, key works like Ovid's Metamorphoses, which Holberton, I think, very severely underplays in his book. The idea that every, every dimension of the culture of classical antiquity, whether it be drama or epic or pastoral, the elegiac tradition, they want to revive it and restore it. But I think you're, you're onto something when, if we then think about the Renaissance as, you know, a period where urbanization and indeed globalization, global trade are beginning, there's beginning to be a bit of a sense that the old pastoral way of life is vanishing. So there is that sort of element of, of nostalgia there. Mm. Pastoral is often used in the Renaissance quite politically as a way of critiquing you know, the corruption of courts and the materialism of city life. Looking back to the simple life, the good life, can actually be a form of contemporary political critique. Do you think that's something that persists to this day, I wonder? And I ask that particularly because you end the review with this really interesting parallel sort of conversation about climate change, about Ovid's Jove and how he himself uh, took to Arcadia to restore it after a fire. And you kind of connect that to, to climate change and wildfires now. And I wonder what the Arcadian tradition is now, or if, if it's a kind of anti-Arcadianism. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the reason I was very keen to write this review essay, because there's a kind of critique of pastoral and the Arcadian tradition in academic criticism, which says this is pure nostalgia for a world that is lost. It's an excuse for not addressing the problems of the present. But I genuinely think that we can, we can flip that around, rather as that some of those Renaissance satirists and pastoralists use Arcadia as a way of offering an alternative world to the present, as a way of you know, critiquing the, the inequalities and the, the ravages of, of nature in the present. I think we can still do this. We can say what Arcadia offers, yes, looked at one way, it sounds like nostalgia, but it's all, the point about an idyll is that it's close to an ideal. It's something we can look to for the future, something we can look to restore. You know, if you if just think of the whole movement towards rewilding at the moment, mm. isn't that sort of futuristic Arcadianism in action? It absolutely is. And it's also they're not trying to rewild to get back to a specific point in time necessarily. But if you don't have the space, as you say, the ideal, the dream of the wonderful thing, 
It's not that you're trying to recreate, you know, a point in 1947 or 1863, whatever it was, but that you have to have the potential to have this wonderful natural space where everything thrives, which is partly what pastoral does, isn't it? Exactly. You need the locus aminus, the pleasant place, as an ideal, an idyll in the human imagination. And then you stop to think what practical steps can we take, whether we be in the city, the suburb or the country, to try to bring that ideal into reality. Mm. Jonathan, thank you so much. I think perhaps we should ask you directly, you know, you mentioned in, in the review certain omissions and things that you don't entirely agree with, interpretations, but you also say this is a tremendously handsome book. It's filled with illustrations, reproductions of, of texts. Is it something that you would recommend for those interested in this area? I really would, with the proviso that it is two fat volumes and it's pretty expensive. So uh, I would at the very least recommend people to put in a recommendation that their local library gets a copy. But to have it on your shelves, I mean, I, as I say, there were things I disagreed with. And it's got a rather curious structure and a, a bit of a sort of meandering style. And it's not always easy to chase up the references. But the illustrations are absolutely fantastic. And the other great thing about it, which you very rarely see uh, in this, this kind of study, is there are these insets where some of the key passages in Virgil and Sanatsaro and Cervantes, many of the key uh, Renaissance uh, authors of pastoral, there are key passages with very good translations of them in, in parallel. And I found I, you know, I had a bit of rudimentary Italian years ago, but uh, reading the, the extract from Torquato Tasso's wonderful pastoral Aminta, um, so reading it in parallel, it actually helped me to brush up on my Italian. So that's a kind of bonus feature that I, that I do heartily <laughs> recommend. It's also, you could trace it right across music as well, isn't it? There's, there's tons of pastoral in music because it comes from the, from the poetry, I think. I'm thinking especially in France, it's at one point you can't move for nymphs and shepherds and, you know, things like that. And there's some amazingly beautiful music came out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, after all, think, think of that early Mozart opera, Il Re Pastore, The Shepherd King. Uh, yeah. He doesn't talk much about music. He does a bit, a bit. And of course, a lot of these pastoral poems at the Renaissance were intended to be sung. Um, I think he says in his preface, his, his hope was to sort of move forward through the Romantic period and in, into modernity. But he obviously has been working on this, I think he says in the preface, for 20 or 30 years, and he ran out of steam. But I would love to see someone sort of do, do a sequel that precisely addresses that question of how does the pastoral tradition endure and how does it change through the romantic movement, through, say, a figure like John Clare, who really was an agricultural labourer, into versions of it in the present. If one indeed thinks of James Rebanks, uh, you know, the late district farmer, his latest book is called English Pastoral, um, the tradition still very much alive. As ever, one comes away from conversations like this and your review with an enormous reading list, which is a good thing. I think I should go. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm going to say back in a very sort of um, optimistic sort of way to go back to Lysidas. You've convinced me that's something that needs a degree of concentration and time. And it's relatively short, unlike many of these Renaissance passports. And that is all to the good. Thank you very, (laughs) Jonathan, thank you so much. That was really, really fascinating. We're really grateful to you for coming and sharing your thoughts on the pastoral and Arcadia. Thank you. It was a pleasure. to come on the show what is the matter with matter and remember to sign up to the tls podcast for free wherever you listen to your podcasts and you will never miss an episode Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, don't be alarmed, bookish arty types, but this week we're diving headlong into the world of particle physics and the small matter, sorry for the pun, of how things work. If we're feeling grand, we could say of how the universe is put together. This week, the science writer Philip Ball, whose most recent book helps us to understand our own minds and those of other beings, which sounds pretty helpful to me, He's reviewed a joint biography of Peter Higgs and his famous boson, and we are delighted and relieved that Philip is here to talk us through it. Philip, many thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So the book, which is by Frank Close, it's called Elusive, and this refers to both the man and the particle, doesn't it? Yes, it does. The particle has been searched for, was searched for, for years, decades, really. Um, In fact, it was 
proposed by Peter Higgs, a British physicist, in 1964 to 60, mid-60s, let's say. It wasn't found until 2012, so it was looked for for decades. So it was extremely elusive. And Higgs himself justifies that description because he's a, a scientist who seems genuinely to shun publicity, to actually be pained by it. He was an extremely difficult person to, to get interviews with, and still is. He seems very reluctant to do them. Frank Close uh, is a physicist himself, and he conducted a lot of interviews with Peter Higgs around the time of the discovery and got to know Higgs and, I guess, got into his confidence. And I think that's the, the only reason that he was able to provide as intimate a portrait of Higgs as one could expect. But Higgs himself is really a very difficult person to pin down and to write a biography of. So Frank has done very well just to do that much. Mm. And actually, it's a brilliant idea to do the two together because that it's sort of difficult to separate them out, isn't it? Certainly in our minds. Well, because Higgs's name is, you know, forever succeeded by boson. So everyone that, you know, has probably heard of, if, even if they don't know what it is, they've heard of the Higgs boson. It was, in fact, one of the things that Frank Lowe says is that even in the 1990s, when, you know, young particle physicists would be working on this problem of the Higgs boson, even they were often surprised to find that this person, Higgs, was a real person who was still alive and, in fact, sort of secreted away in the corridors of the physics department at University of Edinburgh. So by that stage, Higgs himself had, you know, all been forgotten about as a person. It was just the fact that his name had become attached to this elusive particle everyone was looking for. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us, let's say, how about five words of no more than two syllables, why the Higgs boson is important? No, Actually, and also what a boson is. <laughs> what a boson because, is. Because that's where I start. I thought, okay, the Higgs boson is one thing. Are there other bosons? What is a boson? So, I mean, just, you know, assume yeah. a bozo levels of knowledge of what a boson is on my part. I was joking about the five words of no more than two syllables. That's um, I'm trying to get in the defensive dig about us being no good at physics and um, you having to simplify things to an extraordinary level for us. Well, there's one word of one syllable that in a way captures what the boson is. But first of all, why boson? What's a boson? A boson is just a kind of particle. There are two general types of fundamental particle. There are fermions and there are bosons. And then they're both named after scientists who did something to sort of recognize their existence. So we need no more than that, really, that a boson is one type of a huge family of, of different types of particle, of which the stuff that makes up atoms are also members. And the word that kind of summarizes what the boson does is mass. So we're familiar with the idea, you know, we have mass, things have mass. There's a problem, or there was a problem, of where that mass comes from. And that's really the question that the Higgs boson answers, that it is the... The reason, really, the, the existence of the Higgs boson is the reason why certain types of fundamental, in fact, most fundamental particles have mass. So without it, there, everything would be massless. The one common particle that we know of that has no mass is the photon, the particle of light. And the question that people were wrestling with is, why isn't everything like the photon? It kind of looked, um, according to some models, as though you know, nothing should have mass. It wasn't clear where mass comes from. The Higgs boson was an aspect of the answer to that problem. So that's a very, I don't know quite what the word is, that's a fundamental problem, isn't it? That's not a kind of, I mean, of course, it's very high level science, but the question of how do these things have mass is quite a, I don't mean to say basic, but 
but it, it's a problem that everything else can be built on, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the kind of problem that you know most people don't even think about because we're so familiar with the idea of mass. Why should it even be a question where it comes from? But actually, you know, when you look at the fundamentals of physics, it's not obvious why things should have mass. And the explanation, I mean, what's this particle got to do with it? Well, it's really what lies behind the particle, because in fundamental physics, every particle is associated with a field. We're familiar with magnetic fields or electric fields as kind of they're associated with forces that permeate space. So there's a magnetic field around a magnet and that's what makes it attract pieces of metal. Well, there's a field associated with the Higgs boson and it's simply called the Higgs field and it permeates all of space. And it's a really strange kind of field because the fact is that even if you could clear out everything that there is in space, you know, all the, all, all the, the atoms, all the sort of mass that we're familiar with, there would still be the Higgs field in space. And if you remove the Higgs field from space, then that empty space would actually have more energy than if the Higgs field is there. So it's, it, it's something that kind of lowers the energy of nothing. And by doing that, as I say, every field has a particle associated with it, and the Higgs boson is that particle for the Higgs field. So if we could find the Higgs boson, it meant that this idea that there's a Higgs field and that the Higgs field is what sort of gives particles mass, that would be verified. So the big quest was to find the Higgs boson, which would prove that a Higgs field existed. Does that make sense? So it does. It, it makes does. total sense. Yeah. Does, does that mean that Higgs identified the field before the boson or am I misunderstanding? Yeah, that's a, no, you've, you've hit the nail on the head because... That's exactly what he did. And in fact, it's exactly what five other physicists did at the same time, almost simultaneously. I mean, this is the thing that happens weirdly often in science that, you know, suddenly ideas congeal and several people independently hit on the same idea. So Higgs wasn't alone in making this realization. So the six of them, really, in the mid 60s, realized that there seemed to be a need for a field like this. But what Higgs went on to do in one crucial paper in 1966 was to realize that if that's so, there's a particle associated with it. And so there's something then to look for. So that's why it, the Higgs boson bears his name. This idea of a, of a field that essentially creates mass, that wasn't Higgs's idea alone. But the recognition that there's a particle associated with it, that really was to do with Higgs. And so it's really for that reason that it's quite reasonable that his name is associated with the particle that was later found. And you say in the piece that we still don't actually really know what the Higgs field is. Is it right? We can just see the after effects of what it's doing. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We can sort of write the equations for its existence. But what's it like? Is it, you know, does it have fine structure or is it just like a sort of smooth, you know, continuum? No one really knows. We don't know what the structure of that field is. We just have to postulate that it's there. In a way, I mean, it's a very, you know, it's a very hard thing to investigate as a field because all we have to go on is the, the sort of particle that's associated with it. So there are still some questions about, you know, exactly what this mysterious field is that seems to permeate space. Do we know what the world would, as it were, look like if it weren't there? Well, um, we do. I'm not expert enough to say exactly what that would look like. I do know that uh, what it means is that these particles wouldn't have mass. And so they wouldn't be affected by, they wouldn't feel gravity. 
And so things mm. wouldn't have coalesced into, you know, mass matter wouldn't have coalesced into atoms and then into gas and then into clumps of matter and into stars and galaxies. And so we wouldn't exist for sure. Neither would our planet, neither would our solar system or our galaxy. Right. Right. So, that, so, so it's quite, is, quite a big pretty, one then. Pretty, pretty, pretty <laughs> fundamental. One of, you say. one of the big ones. <laughs> you mentioned that, you know, that this work was going on in the 60s. It's a decade since the Higgs boson was discovered. What had to happen to make that possible? Well, the difficulty with finding the Higgs particle is people started to sort of realise as they tried to get to grips with what it might look like, it looked like it was going to be big in particle terms. So, you know, that's very relative, but it had a lot of mass itself. What that means is if you want to create a particle that is very massive, and that's basically what the problem was, we had to actually make these Higgs bosons pop out and so that we could see them. If you want to make one that has a lot of mass, you need a lot of energy and really a lot of energy. So the way particles are made generally that, you know, you can't just find lying around in nature is in particle accelerators, where in general, what it means is you collide matter together. Often you collide particles together, release a lot of energy, and you hope that some of that energy will go into making some of these other particles. So in order to create this massive particle, you needed really, really high energy collisions of other particles. And that was the technological challenge of building an accelerator that was big enough and powerful enough to create these very energetic collisions. So particle accelerators existed in the 1960s, but they had nowhere near enough energy. And they gradually got bigger and bigger in different parts of the world. The main center for particle physics, certainly in this part of the world, in Europe, is at CERN uh, near Geneva. That's the European center for particle physics. And they created the machine that actually finally made this particle, and it's called the Large Hadron Collider, because what it does is it collides particles called hadrons, which in this case, they're basically protons, the particles that make up the nuclei of atoms. And you just have two of them traveling in opposite directions, and they smash into each other. And they do that after they've been accelerated in a 27-kilometer-long tube. It goes around in a circle. So the particles go around in opposite directions. They meet and smash into each other. And if they have enough energy, that has a chance of creating the massive Higgs boson. But it was a you know, tremendous technological challenge to make something this big, this massive, that would release this amount of energy in the collisions. And then to make you know, billions and billions of collisions and sift through them to hope that amongst some of that debris, you'd see signs of the Higgs boson. So that was the chase that was going on throughout the early 2000s. And it was in 2012 that uh, the, the physicists at CERN finally figured they had enough evidence to claim that they'd seen the Higgs boson. So it's a very good example, isn't it? And from what you say, the book seems to be about this. It's about the life of a scientist, about the process, as well as the moment of that particular paper in which Higgs says, actually, there'll be a particle from this field. Then there is decades of patient work, which is by no means all by Higgs and his team. Enormous well, amount of, of, you refer to engineering as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the amount of work that goes into this sort of physics is immense. 
in terms of engineering, but also in terms of the massive teams that you have to put together. I mean, you know, often literally thousands of scientists internationally will have to collaborate on a huge project like this because you need all kinds of different expertise to be able to crack this problem. What's interesting about this, you say Higgs didn't contribute very much. Actually, amazingly, he didn't contribute at all. You know, in some ways, I mean, I say in my review, in some ways, it's a sort of more representative portrait of what life and science is like, that you have, if you're lucky, you have one kind of big insight in your career, and that's it. And most of the rest of the time is kind of drudgery doing research that is probably not very remarkable. That was certainly the case to a, an extreme degree for Higgs. He had these, basically, he published three papers in the mid-60s that proposed this idea and then did nothing else, nothing else of note. And this isn't just my judgment, you know, this is actually Higgs's own judgment. He always said this, you know, that he just had one worthwhile idea followed by decades, really, of nothing. So in a way, it's quite a poignant tale, I find, because he was almost immediately left behind scientifically once he proposed this idea, as he would put it, brighter people than him came along and worked out, you know, what this idea implied, what you needed to do in order to chase after this particle. All of that was done by other people. And he couldn't play a part in that process. He said that he didn't really have the expertise to do it. And so he really went into relative obscurity in terms of his work until the excitement, you know, started to mount in the 2010s when we were closing in on the Higgs particle. And then suddenly he's in the limelight again. And I think in a way that was his problem, that, you know, adjusting to that after decades of obscurity was really quite a challenge. Mm. And it, that must be unusual, isn't it, that he hadn't worked on it then subsequently? Is that unusual? I, I think it's quite common for scientists to have their most to do their most important work when they're relatively young in their you know maybe mm. even 20s certainly in their 30s and then to spend decades you know getting uh, gradually sort of less known and you know uh, but often what they will do is to continue working in that field and making yeah. contributions to it perhaps training students who will go on to do the important work so what's unusual here is that Higgs really didn't do that either that he really did seem to vanish after he published these papers. You know, as I say, to the point where people didn't even know if he was still alive, even if they were working in this field. That really is quite unusual. But this general pattern of having, you know, making a breakthrough early in your career and then this slow slide into kind of irrelevance, I think that's something that a lot of, a lot of scientists, you know, more generally will recognise. Right. It's, it just it struck me. It's, it's almost it's like the opposite of the kind of Hollywood style. You have a flash of inspiration. And you write something on a blackboard and then you get your Nobel Prize the next day and have a wonderful career for the next kind of 50 years. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is the strange thing about Nobel Prizes, particularly in this area where it's such a big job to actually you know, prove the idea. It takes decades and decades that by the time you get recognised, if you're lucky enough to get recognised for having done something important, by the time that happens, you know, not only are your best days past, they're a distant memory. Um, mm. So I think what's interesting here is that Higgs, you sort of really feel that he, he dreaded this happening because of what it would mean that he would be thrust into the limelight. Actually, what, what perhaps is a more common situation is that scientists might, you know, do this work early on and then live out the rest of their lives desperate 
for it to be recognized with a Nobel Prize. Mm. That's a sadder situation in my view, that they live with this desperation, you know, every year sitting by the phone, hoping that- Stockholm will ring. Don't put a call. Mm. And I've seen that happen with scientists. Whereas, you know, in this case, what Higgs did when, you know, he knew in 2013, after the Higgs boson was discovered, he knew that he was gonna get that call and he dreaded it. And actually he fled. And he went, he sowed a story that he was going off to walk in the highlands in case anyone was going to come visiting, but actually he went off to Leith to walk on the beach where no one would find him, where he would be out of reach of all the press because he didn't really want to face what he knew rightly was going to come. Um, was that sort of just like a, a sort of natural diffidence or modesty? Or did he, do you think, fear that people would have expected to him to have made a larger contribution and that it would somehow when it came out that he hadn't, I mean, in the public perception, I mean, that that would be a difficult situation for him. I mean, he was also, of course, you know, he was 83 at this point. He's still alive, isn't he? He's 93 now. What was going on in his life that made him so fearful? Well, I think this is something that it's very hard to get to. And Frank Close, you know, I think does struggle to figure out <laughs> what is really going on for the man, because he is a man of so few words. But I think the truth is that he is just genuinely a very private person. And, you know, I think what went along with that is a genuine real lack of ego, but almost, I have to say, to a pathological degree. You know, it's one thing to to be modest, and he is a modest man. It's another to actually, you know, actively not want any kind of accolades for this, to be, you know, really fearful of that sort of media circus that he knew would follow and did. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, it's nevertheless true that he was tremendously pleased that it was discovered, you know, he was famously moved to tears when he was brought along to CERN for the announcement. And he said, you know, I never thought this would happen in my lifetime. So it's, you know, it's lovely that that did happen, that his work was validated. But I think that, it, you know, he also said this Nobel, you know, ruined my life because okay, he, just, yeah. he really didn't want to. Yeah. And, you know, you occasionally do see that with other Nobel laureates, not just in science. But I think to be that private, to be that fearful of what you're going to be forced to go through once you've been thrust into the limelight like this, I think that is pretty unusual and, and you know, has to reflect someone who's just, you know, intensely personal, and I suspect a very shy person too. The literary equivalent that, that I thought, it was not exactly the same, but the, the wonderful moment when Doris Lessing, they say to her, oh, you've got the Nobel Prize. She's, I think she's coming out of a taxi and she's got her shopping. And I think she says, oh, bugger, oh, bugger, and drops her shopping. Is that <laughs> I, right? It's something yeah, very much like I thought that. of Doris Lessing as well. But, you know, I think in her case, it was just going to be a dreadful nuisance. Uh, yes, you know, yeah. Where with Higgs, I think it, it, you feel this almost, this sort of embarrassment really, that he's going to have to go through all of this. Mm. And what it's, of the field in the 10 years since that happened? Has it been transformed? Has the scholarship changed entirely? This is really interesting because the answer is no. And that is because the discovery of the Higgs was the end of something, not the start. It was the last piece of the puzzle of what physicists call the standard model. So this sort of summarizes everything we know so far about fundamental particles and fundamental forces. All of them that we know of had been discovered apart from the Higgs. It was the last bit to put in place. So when the Higgs bit was discovered, you know, it was fantastic to have that picture completed. But then everyone had to face the problem, what do we do now? Because we know that the standard model is not enough. We know it for various reasons. Um, one being that it doesn't include everything we know about. It doesn't include this stuff called dark matter that we seem to have to invoke to explain 
aspects of what we see astronomically and astrophysically out in the universe, but no one has a clue what it is. It doesn't, you know, there's no place for it in the standard model. We also know that the standard model, there's a discordance between the two fundamental theories of physics, which is quantum mechanics and general relativity. They don't work together. They don't match. So there's still something missing but we don't know what it is. And now that we have the Higgs, physicists have been desperately hoping that they're going to actually find some something new, some problem actually in their understanding of things that is going to point the way to what comes next. For the last 10 years, they've been looking for it, largely at the Large Hadron Collider, which is, is still the most powerful collider in, in, in the world, and finding nothing. And they're getting quite desperate. So it's actually been really interesting that although the Higgs was a triumph, it was also, you know, now it also looks like a sort of the last triumph that particle physics, you know, may have for the foreseeable future unless we find something else. How interesting. So they're looking for the problem, in fact. They actually want a problem. This is the, yeah, this is the interesting thing. They want any sign that there's something still not quite right in their models. So, they, you know, you could say they want to be proved wrong. They want their models to be proved wrong. They want some sort of flaw that shows them this is where we need to look next in the hope that we might find something that will resolve these puzzles that still exist and we know exist, but we just don't have any clue about how to proceed with them. Gosh, that's how I feel talking about physics, not having any clue, knowing how to proceed with it. So in a way, perhaps it's reassuring that that's how the physicists feel as well. Um, but I do feel I know a little bit more. Yes, now yeah, than I think I did. you have explained it very beautifully. Yes, for us, Philip, you're very, very patient explaining. Yes, for the for there. the few of us who don't have a PhD in physics, there will be a couple of us out there. I imagine you've laid it out for us very beautifully, Philip. Thank you very much for joining us. That was a pleasure. Thank you. time for this week our thanks go to jonathan Bate and philip ball and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.